Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 2 The Battle of Maitura. Episode 6 Ogilv Nanagus. The Morrigan's View. Then the Morrigan said, So it came to battle at the last. It came at last to a red and slaughterous battle, as it always has and it always will. It came at last to the calling of kings, to the feats of feasting, to the feasts of poetic words, the talking and the taking of honours, the honour of battle lines, host lines drawn and battalions broken on the blood-zealous battlefield. It came at last to the rigours of battle. A hundred cuts blossomed as screams were heard, screams of fractured metal and the slicing scream of flesh and the breaking of bones. I saw all who were born to bravery on the rage-raven-blade-scabbard battlefield. And it came at last to the recording of bodies, the reciting of honours, the poet recognition of valour, as the story is told and retold. The Dagda replied, But was there not more to the story, more to the battle than the wild wielding of blades? Was there not the weaving of words and quicksilver wits? Were there not boys born in beauty to golden fathers, winning wives in secret places? Was it not a time when the world turned over, when mountains were laid low and valleys devoured by their own rivers, when the noble man was set to the work of a slave and fear and famine ruled. And yet, was it not a time when the king's miserly meanness was brought down by the words of a satire and the seasons restored by the notes of a harp? Is it not that and more? Ut dicator in Vorigen. And the Morrigan said... Aye, that is so. You speak it, and it is a truth. The lowing of the Glasgowan leads the cattle of Ireland back onto the fertile fields, and now the land lies, a cup of honeyed strength, a strength for all. Here there will be a forest point of field fences, the horn counting of many cows, and the encircling of many fields. There will be sheltering trees so fodderful of beech mast that the trees themselves will be weary with the weight. In this land will come abundance, bringing wealth for our children. But not forever. The battle is not over forever. The land will fail and justice will fall. The rhythm of your harp cannot keep us safe forever. The Dagda replied, Not for ever, but for this day. And is not all time made up of days and nights? Peace for this day, then. Oh, so let us go, my woman, you and I. Let us go to the river bed where we have met before, to where you once loosened your nine tresses over the smoothness of your white thighs. There let the world be made and unmade and made again. And is that not a story worth the telling? And 
the retelling. So we finally get to the battle. I suppose everything's been leading up to it and it's inevitable. It always has been. The story I spoke just a few minutes ago was really cobbled together out of two of the Morrigan's own poems. Yeah. There's the one which actually we'll be talking about a bit later on, which is right in the middle of the battle, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost, I feel, like a running commentary. It's in the present tense very much and it's very uh, bloodthirsty and quite a bit graphic. Well, it, she's certainly observing and talking about what she sees. Yes. And no battle is particularly pleasant. Exactly. And then the other one is part of the uh, the story, the, the, the poem that she speaks afterwards. Yes, yeah, which is sometimes called her prophecy or um, her speech. Well, the nice bit of the prophecy. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but look, we'll set them in context yeah. in a minute. The, 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 the battle motor, we're now at the heart of the story. But there's more than one text, isn't there, of this one? Uh, there is. Um, I mean, as you said, it's the heart of the story because it's the name of the tale. Um, but there's only one other text, as we've said before, which also has this name of Casamagatsuritz, and that's an early modern Irish version, um, which I have been unable to find a complete English translation. It's really difficult, of that. isn't it? It is, yeah. But it does seem to be much more focused on the battle itself. Yeah. There's and, less preamble. Yeah, and after all, in this text, the battle doesn't even start until 127. It's actually 127, yeah. Um, so. And, it, and it, actually, this this version, of course, doesn't include the children of Turin either, does it? No, it doesn't. And again, that that's our other main source of of this story, if you like. It's part of the saga. Mm. And difficult to get a hold of a translation of that as well. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, or even an edition of the Irish, of the Clint of Turin story, the, the Sons of Turin. Um, the only translation, published translation, that we could find was going back to our good old friend Eugene O'Curry. Though it seems a better translation it does, than what he does with Shannon. It does, yeah. It's it's more of a literal translation um, than it than a gloss or a synopsis. So it does at least give us that. But even finding the Irish is no, really no. You think these difficult. things are all available, mm. and I know I've read them, and you, you know I've known, no, I've known the children term for years. Yeah, and then suddenly you go, where from? Yeah, what have I got? And you can't. And I went looking for another translation. Mm. I can't find it. And mm. uh, I think we're going to have to look at the Children of Turin in more detail at some later point. Oh, I think so, yeah. Especially if we can get hold of the actual uh, Irish text. <laughs> it's a strange story. Yeah. But anyway, this text is called The Battle of Moitura, so we really ought to describe the battle itself. Yes. And I think today, probably the easiest way for us to talk about it is really to run through the text. Mm. Um, because it's not actually very long, this section. It's not. The, um, the battle itself is, is quite short. So what I'm <laughs> I'm going to do is read section 127 yeah and it goes something like this now when the time came for the great battle the Fovera marched out of their encampment and formed themselves into strong indestructible battalions there was not a chief nor a skilled warrior among them without armour against his skin, a helmet on his head, a broad spear in his right hand, a heavy sharp sword in his belt, a strong shield on his shoulder. To attack the Fovera host that day was like striking a head against a cliff, was a hand in a serpent's nest, was a face brought close to a fire. Yeah. But, yeah, they're great phrases, and uh, they appear in the in the print edition. Those phrases of you know beating a head against a cliff and a hand in a serpent's nest and a face brought close to fire are kind of put in quotes because they are, if you like, well established metaphors for a, a hopeless task. You know, there are a number of phrases that that come up over and again within the the 
uh, Irish literature. Yeah. And those are established phrases for very it. Very cinematic, isn't oh, it? Oh, totally, yeah. yeah you yeah. can almost see the shots. Yeah, yeah. You know, very Peter Jackson, <laughs> this bit. You know, with the Favre host lined yeah. up and, you know, with close-ups on their helmets and the swords. Yeah. And, you know, I know, I know it's very good. But the next section describes the leaders of the Favre. And I think I'm going to hand over to you. Yes, here. yeah. This is section 128. These are the kings and leaders who were encouraging the Favre hosts. Balor MacDoid MacNaid, Bresh MacElathan, Thoratartwilach Mac Lovish, Gull Agus Irgull, Luskan Love Mac Lovgwinach, Indeach Machde Dovnan, King of the Favre, Re Favre, Ochtrialach Mach Indeach, Ovna and Bagna and Elitha MacDelvoith. Now, before we talk about that passage, there's something that might interest you. <laughs> I ought to say that when Isolde reads a passage, why she doesn't often read it very often is because she uses this wonderful machine called a Pacmate, which is like a sort of Braille laptop. Well, I wish it was like a Braille laptop. (laughs) It's actually got the inner workings of a smartphone and uh, it has a Braille display on it. (laughs) With with some of those names, it's really, really difficult. Yes. (laughs) So if there's any hesitation, it's not that Isolde doesn't know the names inside out, but really when you try to do that on Braille, it can be quite amusing. Yes. (laughs) We've done it anyway. So, Um, but what is interesting is how many of those names are so similar to to names that we've met so many times before on the Dodolan side. Yeah, uh, and I think it's it's very deliberate. I mean, some of these names of the Fovara leaders, now we've come across some of them before in this text. We've come across Elitha and Bresh and Balor and 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 so on. Yeah, so, you know, we do know them. And we also have come across Ochtrialach, who is the son of the king in there. Yet you've got an Ochtriel. Exactly. I mean, the son of Dian Kert yes. is Octriel. Yes. And here we've got Octrilok. Yes. And then I always find it interesting that you've got the Dodonan and the MacDovnan. And, yeah, and, and the Daydovnan, yeah. And even those some of those other names like Ovna and Bagna. Now, Ovna, I think, is... It's so much like Ogma. Oh, exactly, yes. And Gull and Irgul. Now, Gull is quite a common yeah. sort of warrior-type name. It means one-eyed. It means one-eyed, but you see, we have another word for being one-eyed or half-blind, which is Koich. And in fact, there's a... Dinchenicus about a girl called Dorkoik who was half blind or was blind in one eye in both eyes and so she goes and drowns herself in a river of course oh, don't do that really. <laughs> <laughs> but Gull seems to be more about someone who's had an eye put out through battle that's why they're and, always fist warriors yeah they? exactly yeah. And but the other one is Irgul who's really half blind <laughs> The half blind and, and the really half blind. Yeah. But I mean, it's just curious, and we will look at this again later mm. on. Just how often you get the same names and the same families appearing yeah. on both sides. Oh, absolutely. And and the last one in the that Delvoid, list, yeah, yeah it was Elathamok Delvoid, and Delvoid is supposed to be the father of the Dagda and of Ogma, yeah. you know, yeah. and various other important Dodonan yeah. figures, and even Eru, who, of course, Elatha. Um, it's just curious we're with. not talking about two different completely different peoples no they, they are so closely connected exactly um now if we go on to section 129 you start talking about the other side and who's on the other side mm. only of course we're so familiar that the text doesn't go through doesn't that. have to name them all because we know them all <laughs> yes. so it's, it's a bit easier on the other side the tour de donnan arose and left the nine companions guarding lou and went to join the battle but when the battle ensued, Lou escaped from the guards set over him as a chariot fighter, and it was he who was in the front of the battalion of the Tour Day. Then a keen and cruel battle was fought between the race of the Fovera and the men of Ireland. <laughs> 
bit more cinematic stuff here. Oh, it is, it is. And uh, we have this uh, thing about Lou escaping as, as a chariot fighter. And he's escaped from the nine guardians who were previously described as uh, yeah, so either foster yeah, fathers yeah. or teachers, you know. Um, and that basically everyone's so distracted by all the blood and gore. Yeah, he finally escapes yeah. and goes out to be the... Right in the front. Right yeah. in the front. He's going to be the sort of Alexander up against Darius bit. He wants to do his exactly the centre. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's interesting that we've mentioned several times, haven't we, that, that, that they were always trying to keep Lou out of the battle. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's they very... don't actually want him in the front lines. No, and it's, it's even more prominent in a way in the early modern Irish version uh, there's that story about how they conspired to get Lou drunk so that he would be passed out and unable to go to the battle yeah. you know so that's it's a strong theme yeah, when it comes really to this curious. actual fight it, it's I mean I know there's this sort of idea that oh he's too beautiful to fight mm. or that he's too valuable to fight yeah. or too important yeah but a there's also indications that they actually don't want him there. No, exactly. And uh, it's a really ambivalent, isn't it? Oh, it is, yeah. And if you go back to episode one of this series, when, funnily enough, we were doing something similar, going through the text section mm. by section, but there was that sort of alternate description, again, from the early modern Irish version, about the burning of the Dedanon boats when they came to Ireland. And one of the reasons was so that Lou couldn't follow them there, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and contend with Nuada for kingship. Yeah, his, so. his presence is ambivalent Very, all the way yeah. through, right up to now. Yeah. Well, I really ought to finish that, that section, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it goes on. Lou was urging the men of Ireland to fight the battle fiercely so that they should not be in bondage any longer because it was better for them to find death while protecting their fatherland than to be in bondage and under tribute as they had been. Then Lou chanted the spell which follows, going round the men of Ireland on one foot and with one eye closed. Yes. Oh, I like that bit. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's it's we've played with that before, and I think we did touch on the the spell that he chants uh, when we were discussing Lou in his own episode. That's right, and this weird stance that he takes, the crazy yes. stance. Yeah, or... no, it's it it is referred to. There is a ref, references in other uh, texts to this position of standing on one leg and with with one eye closed as a crane stance, and. Uh, in some ways, a lot has been made of this. I'm not sure whether it's too much or not. Yeah. But the role of cranes, particularly in early Irish society and then in the literature, is a very interesting one and is kind of undeniable. They were popular pets, weren't they? They were. It, it, if, if you read um, The Wonderful Early Irish Farming by uh, Fergus Kelly, he talks about uh, the term, the Irish word is cor, C-O-R-R, and... Uh, it was uncertain for a long time whether that would signify a heron or a crane because we really don't have cranes in Ireland anymore. No, but you know. apparently they used to be. Yeah, exactly. This is the thing. that They used to be much more common. Also, apparently, they were much easier to tame than a heron. And would bond with the humans. Yeah, whereas a heron wouldn't and was very territorial and would... What was it he said? Oh, he attacks, attacks dogs, cats and children. Children, yeah. So <laughs> not not such a great family pet. But the, the texts, the, the pet that they mention most often is a cora, so a crane. Um, but then the other curious side to that is the term that I think we've touched on before, which is Corguna or Corguna, mm. which is usually translated as sorcerer in these yeah. texts and these tales. Now, if it's Corguna, which would have G-U-I-N-E, that would seem to mean uh, crane wounder or crane killer. 
Yeah, um, that's isn't it? It is a bit odd, you know, if you think that they're popular pets. And then they're glossed as, oh, they were a pest on the land, so... Oh, yeah, the cranes had to be, be trapped. You had and, to have yeah. these special crane killers. Yeah, yeah. Which doesn't really make sense. It doesn't think. It doesn't really fit. However, the the form of the word that's used throughout our text here in Cath Megatilla is Kurguinech, yeah. which... With that little ch ending, what it means is wounded and not wounding. Wounded, wounded crane. Yeah, and the foot, the crane, and the movements of the crane. It's quite possible that it was a poetic stance, and people say, "Yeah, I should see him. He looks like a blooming dying crane." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, you you can sort of imagine a, a, an elderly villain, an elderly poet, standing ramrod straight, possibly you know one leg hitched up and declaiming you know through this slender pointy beak and yeah, yeah. You, you can it could imagine be an oratorial stance a bit like the romans had yeah with, you know the one hand slapping the knee mind you they had to have specific stances to stop their togas falling off yes thankfully <laughs> um, but you get the same in uh, elizabethan theater um, there's wonderful textual references to the exact meaning of hand gestures. Yeah, yeah. And the place I've seen it represented best is in Tom Stoppard's Shakespeare in Love, when Terry Jones, who's playing the nurse yeah. in the Romeo and Juliet, yeah. is on stage and he's declaiming and giving forth in this very sing-song way. But if you watch what he does with his hands, yeah. he's using Elizabethan gestures to signify what he's saying yeah 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 it's it's almost a sign language it's that specific so i mean there's so much uh sort of historical precedent for this uh sort of magical stance yes. as it were but magical in terms of the correct pose exactly for good poetic exactly oratory. i stand like this and it means that i'm telling you of a battle i stand like this and it means i'm praising my patron i stand yeah, like this yeah. and it means i'm performing a, yeah. a satire so you know, this is a subject which we could talk about an awful lot. Oh, yeah. I find it absolutely fascinating, it but it's kind of interacting the yeah, battle. Yeah, we should uh, keep going with the old battle there. <laughs> so let's get on to the next section, which I think brings us to possibly the uh, the main section of the battle, the final moments. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it goes like this. The host came, gave a great shout as they went into battle. Then they came together and each of them began to strike each other. Many beautiful men fell there in the stall of death. Great was the slaughter and the grave lying which took place there. Pride and shame was there side by side. There was anger and indignation. Abundant was the streams of blood over the white skin of the young warriors, mangled at the hands of bold men while rushing into danger for shame. Harsh was the noise made by the multitude of warriors and champions protecting their swords and shields and bodies while others were striking them with spears and swords. Harsh too the tumult all over the battlefield, the shouting of the warriors and the clashing of bright shields, the swish of swords and ivory-hilted blades, the clatter and rattling of the quivers, the hum and whir of spears and javelin and the crashing strokes of weapons. As they hacked at each other, their fingertips and their feet almost met. And because of the slipperiness of the blood under the warrior's feet, they kept falling down and their heads were cut off them as they sat. A grey, wound-inflicting, sharp, bloody battle was upheaved and spear shafts were reddened in the hands of foes. That's fantastic. It is. It's, it's, in some ways, I think it's one of the best prose paragraphs 
that we have in this text. And it's a very good translation. It really gives you the sense of, you know, a battle commentary. And I'm glad that you're now listening to this rather than reading it to yourself. I'm talking to the listeners at home here. Yeah. Um, because hopefully you can sit there and it will strongly conjure it's extremely onomatopoeic isn't it it the, is all the clash and the yes. rattle and the hum and the whir yeah yeah um, there's a lot of sound in there you know it starts well it has you know the screams and people hitting each other and so on and uh, all those terms like the stall of death you know and great was the grave line yes yes so you know it, it's just it's a wonderful piece of literature I've yeah, yeah. More, really. Well, after that, we come at, um, we we come into a couple of set fights, don't we? But there, yeah. there's one that's quite important. There's, mm. you know, it's like it's again extremely cinematic. Yes. You've got your general establishing shots yes. of this horrific battle, mm. and then it suddenly focuses down on a specific, specific incident yes. within the battle. And one of the most important of those, of course, being the fight of Nuador and Makam versus Balor. Yes. And that's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. Now, in a way, it's it's a shame that it's as perfunctory as it is in this description. Um, all it says is that Nuada and Macha were both killed in single combat with Balor, mm-hmm. um, the Fovra battle champion. And if you think about it, Nuada was their king. Mm. You know, you, you would expect there to be a little bit more fanfare, perhaps. But at least he gets a direct individual mention. Exactly. And as does Macha, and this is her only appearance in this entire text so once again we have this sense that as we had in those very first sections i keep going back to that those first sections that we talked about where there was a list of the important dead you know which included erin moss who here when we have this just one-off mention of macha she's described as the daughter of erin moss Mm -hmm. you know and we this was one of the good really highlight bits if you like when we did the uh, performance Oh, in, in 2000, 2000 yeah, Moitre on the battle site. And yes, and we had the most wonderful Macha. Uh, this oh, we did. Gorgeous woman, Donna. If you're out there, Donna, yeah. hello. From America. A yeah. wonderful Amazon of a woman. Oh, yeah. And she had the best boots. They laced all the way up to her thighs. <laughs> But uh, it was it, it was good to I mean but then when you're creating a reconstruction mm. of a battle like that you really needed those moments yes. of individual fights yes exactly and it was a major moment mm. in our reconstruction of the battle yeah and when the when Nurda and Maka finally fall yes. and the crowd oh, you've lost two of your major characters yeah, yeah but that's as a as a storyteller I know that these are the memorable moments mm. these are the points you've got to have yeah. the bits that that people listening to stories yeah they're the bits they remember yes and of course we're now getting to the bit that everybody wants to get to exactly uh, when Lou finally gets to meet Balor yes okay so shall I read that bit from the text yes it's a tiny bit longer Mm -hmm. but it's the story this is the moment we've been waiting for Lou and Balor meet Mm -hmm. so Lou and Balor of the piercing eye met in the battle the latter had a destructive eye which was never opened except on a battlefield four men would raise the lid of the eye by a polished ring in its lid The host that looked upon that eye, even if there were many thousand in number, would offer no resistance to warriors. It had that poisonous power for this reason. Once his father's druids were brewing magic, Balor came and looked over the window, and the fumes of the concoction affected the eye, and the venomous power of the brew settled in it. Yes. 
So that's how he gets his weird eye. Yeah. Um, now, for one thing, this image of the eye that causes this stability, it's its almost like the stability of the Ulsterman that it is we a bit, isn't met it? when we were discussing Macha. So, yeah, it, it renders them impotent and they they offer no resistance. It's funny, we, we always think, if you think about the, the great Balor, the giant and his evil eye, yeah. somehow it's portrayed as a sort of, almost like a cyclopean eye. Yes. Yeah. Or it doesn't doesn't say that he had an extra eye. No, it doesn't. It just says um, that, that he had an eye. <laughs> and I know, even when I made the great puppet for mm. Moitura in 2000, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the huge, great sort of puppet that somebody wore, mm. that had a third eye. Yes. Yeah. Because we wanted it visible. Exactly. And somehow this idea is it's a fiery eye that burns everything to a crisp. Yeah. And I think that appears somewhere... I think it's from the later sources, yeah. though, you know, um, that it is worth pointing out that here in this text, it's a poisonous eye and not a fiery eye. And yet not even a, a, a poison as in killing poison. It, no, it's, it's uh, more sort of hypnotic or, or... Yeah, no, it's interesting. Mm. Uh, but anyway, let's go on. Yeah. So you get to the next bit, then Lou and, and Barrow met. Now, this is this is one of the many passages of, of difficult poetry um, but we do have a version between my translation, uh, which is up on the website under Lou, but Chris has also written, uh, I suppose, a slightly more comprehensible version. <laughs> well, it's just that it's interesting. It's such a difficult piece of yeah. poetry that it doesn't even appear in the text. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I think Grey doesn't even mention it's there, does Well, it? it's a dot, dot, dot. If you have the facing page translation from the Irish Text Society, then, you know, it's very noticeable that there's an awful lot more text on the Irish side of the... Uh, book than on the English side and of course the, there's those wonderfully taunting ellipsis um, indicating that there's something, something missing. missing. Yes. So <laughs> anyway uh, you've done a brilliant translation but I, I just put it into I don't know language that might it is very close to yours. Well, but when I when I do these translations, I make a deliberate effort to make them quite literal, so that when you're reading them on the website, you have the, a line of Irish and then quite a literal line of English, so you can see how the language works. There are about two. I turned little bits around, and there's about two lines which just I could make a tale of. Yeah, but it goes like this. It is then that Lou said, "I may look small to you, but I'm the one who will choose the day of your death." And Balor replied. I see that the germ of the seed I planted lies in the form of my own destruction. And Lou replied, It is so, for you grew your own death. Then Lou spoke the words of banishment. May death by my sword be fitting for you. You were summoned by my will, by my craft, and the craft of my father's people. Evil be to the forer wool packs, evil under floods, under deep seas, under the waves with you. Begone, under flood waves, taking no more than your two hands can carry. You will not take from us corn or grain, green or growing. You will keep no honour price, no fame or fortune. No, woe to you, woe be upon you, clumsy bucklack. You will not bring an end to our world. I shall bring forth a wave swell of raven-heavy sea to overwhelm you. You will take nothing from me. You cannot hurt me. You could not battle injure my body, not even if you cleaved it into pieces, drawn down beneath the multitudinous waves. For a beaten body is a blemish, and I will remain always unblemished. It is you who will be dragged drowning into the flooded seas. 
You cannot hurt me, for it is I who summon the swiftness of wind, the showers of fire, howling of dragons, sternness of lions. It is I who summon the shining sun, the radiant moon. I am Lu, a lynx's wit, a sword for a druid. Under the waves with you, be gone. It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And it's it's very notable, and this was something that we'd noticed back in 2000 when we were struggling, well, when I was struggling with this with only a knowledge of modern Irish, um, but it does banish them under the waves, and yeah, this yeah. really reinforces their nature as Fovwira, those, the people from under the sea. Yeah. Um, again, not people from over the sea, um, not people from underground, yeah. but under the sea is yeah. very much where they are meant to be. In the local folk tales, particularly Ella Young's, mm. you know, the one that's Smith and his son, and yes. some of hers, they're always the people of Underwave. Or yes. The people of under, yeah, they, they, it is the people of Underwave, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I think it's uh, they're, they're, they're certainly interesting, and it's a pity the poetry is left out because it's quite delightful. It is, it is, but it's just it's it's terribly difficult. So hopefully we can start to fill in some of those gaps. Yeah. Well, it makes sense of the next paragraph that is there because mm. um, Balor says lift up my eyelid lad so that I may see the talkative fellow who is communicating with me yes now if you don't have that that poetry mm. you don't know why you've got this young man who's hopping around yeah sort of dancing around Balor going haha way with you you can't catch me yeah uh, you can touch me not even if you try to chop me into bits yes yeah <laughs> you know he's taunting him all yeah. the time so it goes on. The lid was raised from Balor's eye, and then Lou cast a slingstone at him, which carried the eye through his head, and it was his own hosts that looked at it. He fell on top of the Fovera host so that twenty-seven of them died under his side, and the crown of his head struck against the breast of Indaic Magna Dovman, so that a gush of blood spouted over his lips. Yes. This is his death scene. It's a good death scene. It is a Mind good death you, scene. Mind you, of course, in the folklore, he doesn't actually die. No, there's this whole kind of uh, comedic Keystone Cops chase all over the country so that he ends up down in Carnley Lades, which is down in, in I think, Cork Acarius in the southwest, anyway. And you have that confrontation where Balor says, OK, OK, if you're going to kill me, kill me. But when you do, chop off my head and place it on, on, on top of your own, no, place oh, it on top your own head, head. That's right, so yeah. that all my wisdom will pass to you. But Lou is too clever, and before putting it on his own head, Put he sticks it on a stone. Yeah, that's right. And the poison splits the stone in two. Doesn't that story also exist in Donegal as well? Um, I, I it probably the story probably does, but in terms of the Dingenicus, the yeah, Carmine yeah. Lade is down in Kerry. Uh, it might be because you've got Alec up in Donegal, which is also known as uh, it's uh, something to do with Enlade anyway, because it was supposed to be the home of Nade and Nevin. I thought I heard a Jeremiah Curtin story where it it also happens up in the north or something very similar. Very probably because they've mm. they've got a lot of the Balor stories up there. It's very strong. Yeah. Balor's very strong up in Tory Island. Oh, up yes. In Donegal. oh yes. But uh yeah, yeah, it's it's I love the bit where the eye goes backwards. Yeah. It's almost like it's facing forwards, but when he hits it it sort of twists. Mm. So more, um, or a Gorgon-like. Yeah. His own hosts see the power of the eye. Yes, rather than the enemy. Yeah. Now, I, I was talking with Jacqueline Borges. She's actually just uh, published a book uh, which is about the evil eye uh, in Irish it's mythology. Really interesting book. Yeah, and, and, and other symbolism. Will you put symbolism. a link to that? I will book. definitely put a link to it um, on, on our website. Uh, it's well worth reading. Just now. Um, 
And yeah, it's only just out. But I was talking to her about this uh, because you've got a picture of Love and Soul mm-hmm. on, on the front cover. And I was telling her about our Love and Soul story, which we shall come to. But talking about the eye going out through the back of Ballard's head, she seemed to think that that was a sort of a later development of the theme. Now, I haven't been through the book in detail, so, it, but it's an, it's another perspective if you like mm-hmm. because it's it's a, a motive and a story that is so persistent in, in the folklore uh so it kept a living tradition mm-hmm. and we've already referred well, to that again, in terms of it's an image that mm. any storyteller yeah. would make prominent yeah and any audience you've got to think of these things as living stories yeah absolutely and the parts that are going to be remembered are those mm. cinematic moments yeah, yeah and the audience go i really like the bit where his eye goes out do you think it we think it went backwards yeah or do you think people could still see it yeah it's a bit like the moment of uh, the killing of the um, Medusa. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? Yes, and you start to wonder whether the head would still be effective after it was cut off. And yes, so these yes. are things that you ask after a story, and yeah. these are living stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's the other problem is 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 Indaic. Does Indaic die there or not? Uh, it's it's a little bit unclear. As usual, we're having slight trouble with uh, pronouns. You know, because it says that um, Balor fell over and his head struck. In the in the chest, um, and now there is the blood gushed bit, out of yeah, his mouth. Yeah, it could be Balor's mouth that it gushed out of, or in the again, that's not clear. And uh, immediately afterwards, we get another poetic passage, which starts with in saying, "You know, tell me who is that who's just struck me." You know, yeah, yeah, so, and who's just given me a death blow? Because usually the blood coming out means that's it. You've had yeah, it. that's that's the the symbol within Irish storytelling yeah. that says that someone is is dying or has been dealt a mortal blow. Well, maybe that's what it is. He's yeah. been dealt a mortal blow, but he yeah. isn't yet dead. Exactly, he still he's has... killed again a few minutes later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but either way, the battle breaks and turns into a rout. Yes, and and uh, of course, Balor is now effectively out of the story. Yeah, and of course, the other thing we were talking about is I goes shooting. Off yes. forms a lake. Exactly. Yes. Uh, this is this is the bit that I always love telling people. Yeah. In in two thousand, we were in a primary school up near Castle Baldwin, and uh, we'd done a telling of the story. And afterwards, yeah. the 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 headmaster said to a particular boy in the class, he said, "You know a bit about this, don't you?" And the boy said, "Yeah. When Balor's eye was knocked out through his head." It fell in the ground and made a hole near my house. It's nice, and it? that's Loch Nassul. Yeah, <laughs> um, but there's a lot more poetry. Oh, there, there are other lakes, by the way, just in terms of the the, the symbol of oh, yeah. the eye and why it might be poison rather than fire. That um, there are a lot of lakes around the country which have a, an origin story to do with eyes. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, Loch Derg Derg, which is supposed to be the sort of the bleeding of somebody's eye that's been knocked out that then forms this red pool. Um, and that's Loch Derg Derg, which is one of the Loch Dergs. Um, so it's it's not uncommon for an eye to become a lake. Become a lake, well, I suppose eyes cry. It's to do with tears as yes, well. Yes, yeah. Or if it's a particularly round lake, you have this sort of image of an eye looking upwards yeah. in a reflection, you know. Well, I was going to just go on and say... Um, I was thinking about the poems and uh, all these missing poems in this yes. section of the, the text. Yeah. I'm afraid there's a few more of them on the way, isn't there? There are. <laughs> and um, I haven't managed to get to all of them yet. Uh, they will be going up over the... We've got another uh, half a series to go looking at the different themes and so on. And so more of those poems, they will be appearing. What, watch the blog. There just aren't any translations. No, and, and, the, the, and there's a good reason for it. They are difficult. They are obscure. 
um, you know, poetry tends to sort of fossilise a bit and become archaic and obscure yeah, very quickly. When you get into them, they do give you some fascinating stuff. Oh, they do. And I'm l- looking forward to getting through the, the well, last few. So what happens next? Zendaya calls for his poet. Exactly. He's yes. been dealt this death blow. Yes. But he's still got enough strength to call for his poet. Of course. What else would you do when you're in danger of death? You have to make sure that all of your mighty deeds are properly encoded and recorded. And, and of course, songs all, sung. all of these major characters, they all have their own recorder with them. Yes, their own personal poet or harpist. They've uh, let the press in. They've each got their own. They've each they've made got sure their... everybody's got press access. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And this was really important, wasn't it? Oh, more than anything. You know, we've talked before about how, if you like, the truth of things gets encoded in poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, rather than, because we're talking about a society that, that hasn't developed writing, um the same way in which we would now, you know, oh, things are only official if they're in writing, if they're a written document that someone has signed and has been witnessed, mm-hmm. that makes it binding and, and real. Um, but in a society that doesn't have that kind of recording, they use poetry instead. Mm-hmm. And uh, so everybody's got to have their own poet mm. ready to, if your your your. Um, your character should die or could mm. be in danger of dying quickly. Well, Make a poem and write everything down. Exactly. <laughs> or well, not write everything down, but yeah, you know, yeah. record everything. Exactly, yeah. Well, it's almost like that. You know, yeah. it's it's sort of... Taking the photograph. Yeah. Click. Yeah. Capture this moment. This is a moment of my glory. It must, must last be forever. Yeah. So I suppose if you haven't got photographs... Yeah. So the poets, if you like, are the, 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 the court photographers. <laughs> or the press photographers. Yeah, the yeah. And in fact, now it's all about photographing the battle. Yes, in, yes. in all sorts of ways. For you've got the next person we meet is, in fact, uh, Index poet. Yes, uh, Loch Lesglas, and he starts recording things. He oh, starts yeah. talking about uh, the important moments of the battle. Mm. And then you have your overview, the Morrigan. Mm. At this point, it's it's now it's interesting that she chooses this moment after the battle is over mm. to describe the whole battle. Yeah. Now, I mean, the, there's some elements of this which is to do with you know, how the text is uh, compiled and composed and where things are put. And we do get, we've had other episodes before that kind of go back and forth Mm -hmm. over a particular incident. Um, But this is very much, this is the one that I spoke about in the beginning that you Mm. were using. I've used bits of it. Yeah, yeah. in in, in the making of the story. Uh, That it's in present tense, it's it's very kind of visceral. It begins, kings arise to battle. Yeah, yeah. Even though, in fact, I mean, okay, we're saying that the main character, so it turns into a melee and rout. Yeah. So if she's like, go for it, you've got them now. Yeah. We're going to get rid of them all. Yeah. And yet the aftermath has really already begun with with Locke and Indiana. Yes. Yeah, but as you were saying, when uh, everyone has their personal poet or harpist or their their own recorder of their own deeds, but the Morrigan is not anyone's personal poet. She does it for the whole people. She does it for the entire Tuatha. She's the national photographer, not the regional one. She's the (laughs) the others are writing reports and she's writing history. Yes, I see what you mean. She's really the historian. Yeah. She's not something to... Uh, she's not praising the individual. Mm, mm. She is looking at the overview. I think yeah. that's really why we called this the Morgan's View. Exactly. Is because she is there constantly 
watching, were, the, big watching the big picture. Yeah. And it's interesting that she chooses this moment. Mm. Yes, it's before the rout, yeah. strictly speaking. Yeah. But to describe the battle, as you say, in the present tense, mm. it's mm. another one I'm afraid of those dot, dot, dots, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. But uh, we will be putting up both my sort of very clunky literal translation. Well, no, you and, need it. Well, exactly. That's, like I say, because... I really want people to have the opportunity to, even if you don't have any part of the Irish language, what I'm trying to do is let you see the patterns mm-hmm. in the original language and because actually, they're so rich. It's because of those rich patterns mm. that that allows me to take that and use my version of Ruskus yeah, yeah. sort of form in little bits yeah. to create um, something which is, I hope, halfway between. Exactly, which will which will actually carry over what the effect yeah. might have been to an original but audience. But to... Stop all these slowing down dot, dot, dots. That one we can put on the blog. But yeah. do have a look at it because it's really rich. Yeah, absolutely. They are. They are they're, they're kind of, yeah, meaty. Yeah, and they are. Uh, and you won't find them elsewhere. No. I have to say with these. or that, Well, you, you will, but you could. But it's very difficult. It's very find. difficult, yeah. Anyway, so the Fover are driven back to the sea. Now, or under the sea, under the waves. Yeah. Be gone under the waves with you. And on the way, there are a couple of final losses, yeah. including Dean Dea. Again. Yes, the king, again, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, Ogma leaves the story at this point. Yeah. Which is odd, in spite of the fact that he also finds this wonderful sword. Yeah. Now, th- this is a really curious passage. It includes another poem from Loch, who yeah. we have just met, where he is describing the the finding of the sword and what the sword had done beforehand. The sword is called Orna. Mm-hmm. Um, and the voice within the text that is trying to explain things. And I would generally... It's almost like a commentary voice. Yeah, I call it the sort of the glossatory voice yeah. or, you know... Um, it's Commentator's voice. Yeah, it is. It's more like a, a sort of... Those things where they said, oh, they couldn't have played fickle when Lou came to Tara because it had only just been invented and it couldn't have got to Ireland yet. Yeah. That glossorial voice that like tries to explain... later... Yeah, uh, yeah. A later commentator. Yeah, trying to rationalise yeah. things. And there's so there's a little passage here about how it was the custom at that time for uh, swords to be worshipped and so they had demons in them that would speak and tell of the deeds that they had done um, and, and that's why you had to clean them exactly so they as were entitled yeah they were entitled to be cleaned as a tribute but also that they could be used as sureties or a guarantee um, that's when you pledge something mm-hmm. and when you make mm-hmm. a contract um, now the there's elements of that little glossorial description that match quite closely another little gloss which comes into the tale of Shergla Gokhan Colland, which is the sick lying of Cúchulainn. Oh, yeah. That's when he's, he's been, been got by, uh, by Liban and Fan. Yeah, who then go and, and beat him black oh, and blue. Yeah, yeah. Nice story, that one. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good one. It's one of the only ones I do like. Yeah, yeah. But in that, there's, there's talk about swords and how they were... In, you know, you had to be truthful, otherwise the sword would turn against you. Mm-hmm. And there's another little sort of glossorial note like that that said, "Oh well, you know, people used to worship swords, and they were entitled to sureties. Mm-hmm. So and, uh, that if you lied, your sword might not work. In the exactly, future. yeah, that it would it would work against you. Uh, if you this like, is in another battle. big subject, which is probably going to be too. It is, yeah, it's now. sort of too vast. But in 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 looking into it, we have found a couple of interesting things now. Again, this is a the the poem that Loch speaks about what the sword has done. I think is part of the 
original idea, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that there was, he was able to know what the sword had done. But it turned into this motif of talking swords. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Any modern sort of fantasy in the whole D&D yeah. role play and everything else, the concept of the talking sword is quite familiar. It is, I, yeah. I, I think when it was picked, I didn't realise that, uh, say, Michael Moorcock's Stormbringer, yeah. the good old Elric stories, and uh, was obviously based, I thought, on a lot of talking yeah. swords but when I went looking most of the Viking or Norse or Germanic swords they have or you know they, they have this wonderful ability to remain sharp or do all sorts mm. of things but there are actually very few talking swords yeah except in the Irish tradition yeah the, the, and they're rare enough as in even in there exactly but it all seems to date from this idea that your sword would the deeds of your sword if you lied about mm. them the sword would no longer work for you yes and this seems seems to be create a later idea when the Dodonan become false demons yes. and when they become the fairy folk mm. that therefore well talking sword can't exist so it has to have been a demon exactly yes yeah um it's an interesting idea. It's mm. a bit big, but I just think it was worth... St it's a bit of a major new theme. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's one of the few places you actually find this concept of the talking sword. Exactly. And that that's quite surprising, you know, to think that, again, it might come down to this text, as with so much else yeah. that we've discovered, you know... In fact, this text seems to be, if you like, a source yeah, for no, that idea. Yeah, there is an article. Um, Again, by Jacqueline Bors, she's done an article about uh, demons and weapons. And I'm yeah. going to see whether she'll let us post it, because it's, it's well worth reading. That is well worth yeah. reading. End of part one. To continue the conversation, listen to part two.